Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective Poetry Show here on KSQD FM 90.7. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and tonight I have the great pleasure of speaking with Javier Zamora. Uh, Javier is a poet and author of the memoir, Solito. And we're going to be talking today about Javier's poems from his collection, Unaccompanied, that was out in 2017. We'll also be listening to some passages from his memoir. And Sandra Cisneros said that she's been waiting a long time for this memoir. Welcome, Javier. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here and wonderful to, I just finished reading Solito last night and Mm. so enjoyed it. It is an incredible memoir. And you've had so much great press lately, the New York Times and the Guardian. How are you taking it all in? Uh, It's a lot, but it's the good kind of a lot. You know, I'm trying my best. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because you're traveling all over and Mm -hmm. yeah, on tour right now. It's wonderful. I'm glad to see this book getting so much press. It's it's deserved, (laughs) I'm, I'm sure. So we're going to get to some of your poetry in a minute. But before we do that, I want to um, acknowledge not only the initial journey that you made to Gringolandia, Mm -hmm. but uh, the personal journey that led you to write both Unaccompanied and Solito. Can you talk a little bit about that personal journey? Um. Let's see. I wasn't the most literary student growing up in the Bay Area. Literature or poetry specifically sort of found me when I was 17, um, my senior year of high school, when I was applying to colleges. And poetry sort of replaced soccer because I was a good soccer uh, player and I hoped that I would get a soccer scholarship to play at a D1 school. Mm. And that didn't happen. And a reason why it was difficult for me was because I was undocumented at that time. And I found out that I didn't qualify for FAFSA, for Pell Grants, for all these scholarships um, Mm. that a regular citizen student would qualify and by this time you'd been in the united states for about nine years correct Mm, yep around nine years um this is 2007 Mm -hmm. and poetry uh, this teacher just came into our classroom and asked us to write a poem about what home meant to us and for me immediately i the title of this poem that I've never published and I can't find anymore, but the title was Mi Tierra slash My Land. And it was sort of the beginning of a sort of bilingual journey into writing. It was the first time that I allowed myself to code switch on the page and also to really think about the land, the country, 
my family, the people that I had left behind and that I hadn't gone back to. And so from the ages of 17 until 27, when my first book of poem comes out, I'm beginning to probe into my trauma that the nine weeks that it took me to get to this country, mm. um, that journey. And from ages 29 till 31, when I handed in the last edit of Solito, I dove um, even deeper into those nine weeks. And it's what gave me Solito. Solito. So it's been quite a journey. I <laughs> am sure. Yeah, just for those people who may not know and may not know to the extent to which immigrants experience it. Can you talk a little bit about that code switching? Um, so from 1999, when I make it to this country, to the Bay Area, up until 2007, I had been told to by my parents and by the ones who knew my story, which is my parents' friends, to not tell anybody that I wasn't born in this country. So I would lie and tell people that I was born in Green Bray, California, which is outside of San Rafael, and to not speak Spanish. And so this is like a huge um, part of assimilation and it's a survival tactic. And I was full of fear that if I was found out that first INS and then INS became Homeland Security, so that ICE would come and knock at our door and deport my parents and myself. And so I didn't allow myself to speak Spanish or to code switch. And of course, this is like around this time, it's also when reggaeton begins to make the airwaves. And I could hear people um, playing in English stations, mm -hmm. code switching, um, Pitbull and Daddy Yankee being some <laughs> of the first. And and so there was that happening. Politically speaking, it's around the time that the DREAM Act gets introduced into Congress. Mm -hmm. There's millions of immigrants who have the biggest protests since the civil rights movement in 2006. And so all these things kind of made it possible for me to code switch and just be myself and just use throw a Spanish word here and there. But not only that, um, I also had assimilated my Spanish into the predominant Spanish spoken in most of California, which is Mexican Spanish, which, you know, as Salvadorans, we use voceo, which instead right. of using tu, we mm -hmm. say vos. Mm -hmm. And so that I also had to hide. And for some reason, um, well, I know why, um, because of my dad. My dad was always, he's like the proudest Salvadoran that you can find, and he never let me forget. At home, I still spoke Spanish. Um, I still spoke uh, like a Salvadoran, and it's because of him. And so in 2007, when I began to write, I used um, Salvadoran caliche, which is our slang and our pronunciations. And so that was always important because that, type of Spanish is what home means to me. Absolutely. And, you know, all, all throughout Solito, we're going to get to a poem really quickly, but you use that caliche all, th all throughout it, which is, you can't necessarily, you can look some of it up. I tried to look some of it up, <laughs> but not being able to has its own 
power, I think, just to bring those words there. So I'm so happy that you included that. Mm-hmm. And I also it also brings the characters alive. For me, it brought them alive. And it's particularly, uh, throughout both Unaccompanied and Solito, those people are full-fledged, three-dimensional, in- extraordinary people with singular voices. Mm-hmm. And I think especially for me, and you know, we'll, we, you might comment on this later, I don't know, we could get back to it, but Chino is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So... I'm going to ask if you could read that poem in Unaccompanied that is um, about him. So before I read it, I would like to say that my book of poems, it's almost like the stepping stone that I needed in order to really dive into a really hard time in my life, which are the nine weeks that it took me to get here. And as a reader, you can almost tell that Chino only appears in this uh, 86-page poetry book once. I only allow myself to think of him in what I'm about to read. But in Solito, I wanted to paint a fuller picture of who he is because as, as the listener, you're about to hear about Chino in perhaps the worst day or one of the worst uh, times of his life. Um... So this is Second Attempt Crossing for Chino. In the middle of that desert that didn't look like sand and sand only. In the middle of those acacias, whiptails, and coyotes, someone yelled, La Migra, and everyone ran. In that dried creek where 40 of us slept, we turned to each other, and you flew from my side in the dirt. Black-throated sparrows and dawn hitting the tops of mesquites. Against the herd of legs, you sprinted back toward me. I jumped on your shoulders, and we ran from the white trucks, then their guns. I said, freeze, Chino, para, por favor. So I wouldn't touch their legs that kicked you. You pushed me under your chest. And I've never thanked you. Beautiful Chino. The only name I know to call you by. Farewell, your tattooed chest. The M, the S, the 13. Farewell, the phone number you gave me when you went east to Virginia and I went west to San Francisco. You called twice a month, then your cousin said the gang you ran from in San Salvador found you in Alexandria. Farewell, your brown arms that shielded me then, that shield me now from La Migra. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and I'm here with Javier Zamora, who just read one of the poems from his first collection of poetry, Unaccompanied, about one of the people who accompanied him here on his journey. 
to the United States. That's an incredible tribute, and I know that that was the only one mm -hmm. about Chino, and he gets his... We really get to see him in a, in a fuller sense in Solito. But, and you capture him in Solito, both places. There's such a longing in that poem and such a, almost a passion for Chino that's dear and, and almost reverent for what he did. So it's, it's an extraordinary passage as well, the, the longer passage, of much of the book that has Chino in it. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you, you did have some contact with Chino. Yeah. Um, so before I say anything else, I, I think this poem haunted me because it's a poem that that a lot of people asked me to read and i think you know this book comes out in 2017 which trump is in office for one year and it's also the year that we hear a lot about the unaccompanied minors at the border as if children hadn't been immigrating for decades before and will continue to do so and so that angered me, um, this coverage um, that seemed to reduce immigrants to the worst day of their lives. And then here I was, um, not thinking that people were going to, one, read the poetry book, and two, that I would get invited to all these universities to read my poetry. And at one point, I felt like I was doing the same thing that the headlines were doing. I was just describing Chino during the worst day of his life. And, uh, and he, I was reducing him. I was flattening his humanity. And so even in the poem, I acknowledged that I never felt like I thanked him. And that haunted me. So from 2017 to 2009, I tried to write a second collection of poems, cunning trying to address this issue in the media, which is the, the flattening of Central American immigrants and children and adults um, uh, all across film and newspapers and media. And I couldn't do it. I, it was too re-traumatizing. So then I started writing Solito. And Solito not only becomes a thank you note to Chino, but then, during the writing of Unaccompanied, I couldn't even bring myself to remember the other people around, which is Patricia, this 27, 28-year-old mom with her 12-year-old daughter, and Chino, without whom I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And Patricia, who has the same name as your mother, yeah. of course, so she became your mother during the course of that journey. Yeah, and Chino was like an older brother or like even a dad, yeah, you know, and Carla became my sister. I don't have any siblings, but I think that's the closest I've been to having a sibling. And, and so much of what you went through on that journey almost was a predecessor for what you would go through in the United States in terms of that code switching, because you had to do that in Mexico too yeah. on the, on the journey. So it's just kind of extraordinary um, how it mimicked your life, that journey in microcosm, 
is a little bit of the 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 macrocosm that was going on. Yeah. What what happened between the time you wrote unaccompanied and you cracked open the idea for Solito? Um I was suffering. You know, I suffering in the sense that here I was, uh quote unquote celebrated poet getting paid to read my poems, which I never thought, I never imagined that this was going to be like a line of work that I could do. Um, and I was reading my trauma to people and without having a therapist. So I would get invited and read my poems and then be stuck alone in a hotel room feeling just empty. And with my wonderful therapist now, we have made a recent almost like discovery that perhaps traveling around the country reading this book was closer. I was kind of like redoing, replaying those nine weeks that I that it took me to come to this country. And that's why it was re-traumatizing. I didn't know so myself. In hindsight, now I can I can see that um, very clearly. And and so I was just destroying my body um, through alcohol, through you know, just finding, through working working out excessively, just doing all these things so I could feel something because I just felt like I was letting the people that helped me survive down, mm. and I was letting my family down. And at the same time, I was still, I wasn't, I was no longer fully undocumented. I had temporary protective status, which is given to a lot of Salvadorans, Ethiopians, Nepalese, Haitians. Um, so I could travel within the United States, but I couldn't leave the United States. So I still felt trapped. So all those things just, you know, that that, that time between 2017 and 2019, when I finally find my therapist um, on November 2019, I was, I was struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Even though on paper, on paper, that's when I was at Stanford. And then I got this fancy fellowship at Harvard. And in between, in 2018, I get my green card, finally. So things are, are looking good they're looking on good. paper. Yeah, but yeah. internally, yeah. they're not. Yeah. yeah. Well, from the outside, things yeah. things are sailing along and you're having successes mm-hmm. but there there was that that reckoning that hadn't happened yet mm-hmm. with the past mm-hmm. yeah i was running away from it yeah i'm glad you found your way back to it mm-hmm. so let's speaking of um mexico going back to my previous comment about mexico and how you had to do us the, us the code switching there you were actually pretending to be Mexican um, it might be a good segue into this next poem would you read that one for us Javier on a dirt road outside Oaxaca Hmm. so you know as Central Americans and South Americans that were with me in 1999 on this immigrant route um, we all have to feign a Mexican tongue in order to survive and to pass. And 
this is about that. And this is also another poem that I expand in Solito. And it, it pretty much give, gives me the entire like fourth chapter. On a dirt road outside Oaxaca. The Mexican never said how long. How long? Not long. How much? Not much. Never told us we'd hide in vans like matchsticks. In our town, we'd never known Mexicans besides the women and men in soap operas. So in our heads, we played the fence, the San Isidro McDonald's, a quick run, a van. Not long, not long at all. In Oaxaca, a small brown lizard licks horchata from my hand. We're friends. We pick names for each other. Hola, Paula. Hola, Javier, she says. We play the fence, a quick run, the van. How long? Not long. On the dirt, our knees tell truths to the cops, front sights, and barrels. How much? Not much. We'd never known Mexicans besides Chente, Chavela Vargas. We're on the dirt, like dogs showing nipples to offspring. It's not spring, and we're going to where there is spring. We say, it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be just fine. My hands play with Paula. Again, we're here with Javier Zamora. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, here on the Hive Poetry Collective and 90.7 FM. This, I love the chapter in Solito about Paula. Hmm. Because it, 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 and you can see all throughout Solito, and I should, we'll talk about this later, but that there's that overlay that happens between the adult writing and the child's voice. But the imagination that's in that Javiercito that's mm -hmm. depicted in Solito is so full and rich. And the same thing with Paula mm -hmm. in this one, in this poem. And as well, I love your repetition of spring in that penultimate stanza the, the two offspring, it's not spring, and we're going to where there is spring. Because that also shows so much of the hope that's throughout your poems, and particularly in Solito. Yeah. Yeah. And what I like about, I think, poetry, and it really explains why I wrote a book of poems first. Um, because you can still hide. You know, and I can make these giant leaps that for the outside reader not knowing my story, they might even be confused as to what? Like, there's a lizard speaking. Like, why is the lizard speaking? And what? Offspring and spring? Okay, that sounds cool, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And I think we're talking about what the brain does. You know, in the poem, I'm showing you how my brain is disassociated from a very horrific situation and I concentrated on this very real I still remember the lizard that I just concentrated on and that's how even a nine-year-old brain 
wants us to survive and is trying to protect us. And then in prose, I can really um, carry the reader with me and really spell everything out as it's happening. And in that way, it I have to be more present. And in further down the line of healing, like I don't think I could have written prose while I was still undocumented. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen for other people, for my for myself mm. that couldn't have happened. Mm. I needed all these other privileges, the privilege of being able to afford a therapist and also the privilege of having now a green card that allowed me to sit down and really go there, which a lot of people, it's hard. It's been hard for me for almost 20 years, but now then when I was 29, I could really go there and really add the rest of the words around this lizard to help me survive. It's interesting because it's almost a, um, a little bit of a, uh, a, not a paradox, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for, but one is equally able to hide in prose as one can in poetry. So for your particular journey, it, the, you feel the poetry did that for you, allowed you to hide mm -hmm. a little bit further. And what's remarkable about following up unaccompanied with Solito is that there's still this imagination, this imbuing of things with power or a life that's bigger than the object itself that is so much a part of poetry. And it's, it's lovely that you've been able to include that because there's passages about the earth, there's passages about the sky. So I would love to hear how that, how you feel unaccompanied. I mean, I know that it was part of your journey, but part of uh, the, the poetic aspect of unaccompanied that also filled Solito. One doesn't exist without the other. Um, I think Solito can only happen through my journey in poetry. And it was poetry that even at 17 years old, when I get introduced to poetry, it's like somebody gave me a key. And at 17 years old, I'm given this key. And what I will eventually write about is this giant um, dresser in a dark room. And this key that I'm given can open all these drawers. And little by little, I'm opening one by one. And by the time that I finish unaccompanied, I realize that I've only opened one, one drawer. But now that key understands that there are other drawers and that's how we get to solito mm. but it's still part of the same uh, dresser and that dresser is my life and now i have the tool um, that can open all this stuff yeah. i love that metaphor that's mm. a great metaphor mm. it's perfect for for what's going on and really all of us you know we have many drawers like that yeah. all of us do yeah. so um I think let's go to another poem um, before we stop for our 
station ID, and this is the the last the last poem that Javier will read. If you'd be so good to do that, Javier, um, it's called "Let Me Try Again," and I think this poem is particularly arresting for me in what it's depicting. And again, another one of those another one of those poems that gives me another chapter and another scene in Solito. And yeah, I'll just read it. Let me try again. I could bore you with the sunset, the way water tasted after so many days without it. The trees, the breed of dogs, but I can't say there were 40 people when we found the ranch with the thin white man, his dogs, and his shotgun. Until this 5 a.m., I couldn't remember. There were only five or seven people. We had separated by the Palo Verdes. We meaning four people, not 40. The rest... I don't know. They weren't there when the thin white man let us drink from a hose while pointing his shotgun. In Pocho, Spanish, he told us, Cicorer, Peros, Atacar. If run, dogs, trained, attack. When La Migra arrived, an officer who probably called himself Hispanic at best, not Mexicano, like we called them, said, Buenas noches, and gave us pan dulce y chocolate. Procedure says he should have taken us back to the station, checked our fingerprints, etc. He must have remembered his family over the border, or the border coming over them because he drove us to the border and told us, Next time, Rest at least five days. Don't trust anyone calling themselves coyotes. Bring more tortillas, sardines, alhambra. He knew we would try again and again, like everyone does. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and we're talking today to Javier Zamora, whose recent memoir, Solito, is just out, as well as his previous collection of poems, Unaccompanied. You can follow the Hive Poetry Collective at Hive Poetry on Twitter or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, and you'll also find there all our radio shows archived, uh, so you can listen at any time. And you can also pick them up at the usual spots on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive our tri-yearly newsletter, please go to hivepoetry.org and subscribe. We'd love to give you the honey about all things poetry. Yeah, that that last one, that last poem, forms the spine of a pretty incredible chapter mm-hmm. in Solito. Um, one that 
I don't want to give away too much to <laughs> our listeners because it's, but it's a riveting chapter, and um, but it uh, it also continues this elucidation, this outlining of the strength of that pretend family that you became part of, and I I just can't it's. It's hard for me to imagine the parting, and especially over the years mm -hmm. that resulted from that. And I know that a lot of Solito is about coming to terms with that for you. Yeah, regarding that parting. So, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say that, you know, we make it. <laughs> right, <laughs> and I'm right. Here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And we... I'm not talking to a clone, yeah. Or, yeah, a doppelganger. <laughs> we, who I called the four, which is Chino, Patricia, Carla, and myself, we eventually, because they all are going to the same area of the United States, which is Alexandria in Virginia, the DMV area near Washington, D.C. And so we're in Tucson, but then they have to leave. And then they have to leave me until my parents come pick us up. And this is a section of the book you know i've had different different scenes different people who've moved me one while writing another while editing and then i read my own audiobook and i was surprised by what characters jumped out oh, and wow, moved that... me to tears and yeah. when i say move i'm like i would break down mm. and when this scene when i say goodbye to chino Patri or they say goodbye to me always in the writing of it and the editing of it and the reading of it always moves me. Mm. And it's just, um, yeah, you know, it's this acknowledgement that I sincerely would not be alive without these people whose last names I don't know. Mm. And I hope, I really, really hope that this country has been kind to them, which you know, then my adult brain kicks in and I'm like, statistically speaking, it probably hasn't been. And Especially for Chino. Yeah. Oh, well, I shouldn't say that. It's, yeah. it's rough for We everybody. don't know. Yeah, and, we, and, don't know. Um, we don't know. And that's another part too. Like in, in the poetry book, you know, that, that poem, I make it sound like Chino is dead. Which, and this tells you a lot about the trauma that, these nine weeks that I carried and it's and how it's been so difficult for me to talk to my parents about which I've only talked to them fully about those nine weeks twice in my life and the first time that I talked to them according to my mom she know you know what you hear in the poems that she heard that the cousin told her that he died mm. which you know, this is pre-2017. In the writing of this book, then I asked my dad and re-asked my mom. My mom had forgotten that she told me that. And my dad is like, no. Like, that never happened. We just lost their numbers. And so there's... I don't I don't know. Um, I was a kid. They never called back again. I, I don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. It would yeah. be something if you heard from them after this book. But yeah. <laughs> we don't know if that will happen either. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the the voice that you were successfully able to um, bring to life in Solito, the nine-year-old Javiercito, and that imagination 
that's present in your nine-year-old self. Again, the way you are able to overlay the working mind of the adult Javier onto the experiences of your nine-year-old self. And I know you went down, because the, the other thing I should say is that the amount of detail in Solito is incredible from the the plants to the color of the sky to the color of the dirt to the names of the stores to all, so many things that were there. So, th- so that in itself is an, a, another act of imagination that's layered onto the child's imagination. I'm curious how you accomplish that. Um, a lot of my therapy sessions, um, you know, I meet to this day, I meet with my therapist every Wednesday. We're recording this on a Wednesday. I met with her earlier today. Um, a lot of the sessions in the writing of this book, I wrote this book during the pandemic, um, which, you know, I didn't have a job. And, and so my job became writing this book. I, I treated it like a nine to five. And every Wednesday I would meet with my therapist and I figured out that what, how I, how my brain dealt with the trauma was that it remembered it very clearly. Mm. Um, and there were images that a lot of, uh, Caro, my, that's my therapist's name. All she had to do was just like, teach me to trust that image those images and to trust my nine-year-old mind because it's it's there you know it's in that cabinet Mm -hmm. and it's a film it's not even a photograph it's a film that just stayed there Mm -hmm. and because of that because it's still so fresh what my brain then did is just put that cabinet in another room and i pretended that that room did not exist so then when I tried to face my trauma and I really sincerely went full head on to try to recover and remember that, it just, it was triggering and it was so full and, and I had like breakdowns and I had nightmares and I would wake up and most, most famously for myself was that jail scene mm-hmm. when I'm stuck in the immigration detention cell that just came to me in a dream. And my, my wife is also a Reiki practitioner and she would also, Reiki was a big part of healing like my, the energy uh, in my body. And so for that scene, I had a nightmare. I woke up, I talked to my therapist and then I remembered more stuff. And then later in the day, um, I had a Reiki session with my wife and then I remembered even more, like the faucet, how how the light was breaking through a window and hitting the faucet just so. And, and then the scene wrote itself. And, and other scenes took, hard, took longer to get there. And for half of the book, I had to move to Tucson in order to get the detail of the dirt because I didn't remember. And again, this is something that I couldn't have done until 2018 when I got a green card. Mm. Because if you don't have a green card, I don't advise you go to Tucson because there's border patrol a- agents that you just drive past. And there are checkpoints if you go near the border. Yeah, you're not gonna get back, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I needed 
to be in the climate and the climate, the trees, the, the cacti, the animals would trigger a memory. Mm. And then I would go and sit down at a desk and write. Because there's so many great details there, too. I mean, yeah. the cacti all have different names. There's the lonelies. There's the, <laughs> what else is there? The fuzzies. Yeah. The, yeah. So the people cactus. The people cactus. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. And the the part that I really loved was the undersea depiction of the desert. Hmm. So kind of flipping almost. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Why? why how did that work in your your nine-year-old brain, but also your adult brain. <laughs> um, and my wife would appreciate this. It was actually her. Um, we were in the desert at night doing research. And then she was like, it kind of looks like coral. I was like, yeah, it looks like like the bottom of the sea. And if you go to the desert, it's not that big of a stretch. You know, the, the desert at night or at dawn, it looks like the bottom of the sea. Um and, you know, in El Salvador, Jack Cousteau always played every Sunday. And it was one of my favorite shows. And so that, that is true. You know, and I would, I've always been a fan of nature. And I think it's because I grew up in rural El Salvador with neighbors who, as a pet, had an anteater. You know? Wow. And, and there were coral snakes in the back. There were kangaroo rats. Um, there were toucans, um, torogoses, which is one of the most, it's a mot mot, I think, in, in, in English. Um, one of the most beautiful birds that you would ever see. And this is just my childhood. Um, yeah. We're talking today with Javier Zamora, who has written the memoir Solito about his journey as an unaccompanied nine-year-old from La Herradura in El Salvador to... The United States here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. Yeah, the desert as an undersea world is really a, a terrific piece in the book that Javiercito continues to come back to, especially in that, primarily in that last chapter. But I also wanted to. I think it might be a good time for us to turn to a passage in the book that depicts the scene in La Herradura prior to your leaving. So could you read for us that passage that starts, I think, on page 40? Yep. And so the book is told in the present tense, and it begins a few days before my departure, and I leave my hometown on April 6, 1999, which is the date of what I'm about to read. It's dawn, indigo, like when mom left. Mali kisses me awake, and I have to get ready. The roosters crow, la bonita barks, the birds sing, the world is waking up. The stars turn off one by one. To shower, I pull water from a well with a bucket. Grandpa already showered. Abuelita dries me off. Mali irons my clothes. The outfit has been picked out. A nice dress shirt, 
dark blue. Dark blue jeans, a black belt, black dress shoes. Next to the hard-boiled eggs, avocado, queso duro, and tortillas, a black backpack. Even the brand name has been crossed out. Inside it, a dark t-shirt, black pants, two pairs of underwear, an extra pair of shoes, the plastic toothbrush, a comb, soccer shorts, Colgate toothpaste, a bar of palm olive soap, head and shoulder shampoo, and another dark blue short-sleeved dress shirt. There's a notebook, big pens, pencils, and the assignments my teachers gave me. Everything has to be dark colors, Mali explains. Don Dago's orders. I eat, and Grandpa waits by the door, holding my black backpack and his own regular one. He looks at his watch. Abuelita combs my hair. Mali kneels in front of me to button my shirt. She tucks it in, kisses my forehead. Lupe is here, the earliest I have seen her come visit. She hugs me, kisses me, wishes me luck. Julia is sleeping in Abuelita's bed between two pillows to keep her from falling. Abuelita kisses me, kneels to hug me. Then Mali and Abuelita hug me at the same time. Only now I cry. This is it. The thing I wanted to happen, but it's happening so fast. Te queremos mucho, Chepito. Te cuidas. Que Dios te bendiga. Here, everywhere, always. We'll be waiting for you. Praying you'll make it there safely, Javiercito. Their voices, almost in unison. Soft, breaking with every word. Tears running down their round faces. I can't stop crying. Then, they make the cross over my forehead. Over my head over my entire body, wiping my tears with their hands. Grandpa grabs my arm, walks me past the door. Don't look back, he says, but I do. I see Abuelita and Mali in the middle of the door, holding each other. Lupe has a hand on each of their shoulders. Come on, Grandpa says. And we walk. That passage is so powerful for the sense of the love that's there in that family for you and what you're leaving. And it's also, it's also riveting because later on in the book, there's so much about your strength in not crying. Hmm. So hmm. It's a, there's a little bit of that there, yeah. Javiercito and his trying to be the the strong one so beautiful passage and beautiful too in the the compression of language that you've got all through this book which is another way that the book is emulating poetry or incorporating poetry the compression the list making the the imagery Mm -hmm. is just gorgeous in there as june jordan liked to say minimum words maximum impact impact yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's pretty pretty sweet in there javier so i wanted to 
Well, let's do one more uh, station ID here. You're listening to KSQD-FM 90.7. I'm Julia Chiapella, and I'm here with Javier Zamora, who is reading passages from his book Solito, which is was just out September 6th. And there's a Spanish edition, too. It comes out October 18th. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, I wish we could have it here now. Yeah. But <laughs> we will soon. So... Um, I wanted to ask you about the book as, well, we, we're, we're kind of in this period in time that's devoted or focusing on the transsectional, the liminal, the space between things, and uh, the, the mashup that can happen with things. Um, I recently listened to uh, Solmaz Sharif on Between the Covers, which is just a fabulous I love that podcast and, and I love her her recent book customs is terrific um, she has a brilliant mind and and she really dives into that space between here and not here uh, and she's she's living there as an Iranian American uh, living in the United States I'm I'm wondering how that sense of being between two worlds impacts you hmm. it's Interesting you mentioned Somas because Somas, you know, a graduate of UC Berkeley, then goes to NYU and then gets a Wallace Stegner Fellowship. And I get there just a year after she graduates and I, I start reading her poetry mm-hmm. and it really hits home. And I then I, I look at her CV and then I always try to, I learned about, NYU through looking at her bio. Hmm. And so she is this poet, this literary figure who whose footsteps I'm following on. And in that sense, her poetry really showed me what it means to, you know, what we like to say is I'm not from here, I'm not from over there. What am I? Um, this in-between space of you as immigrants, um, I don't feel like I belong here in the United States, in the empire. And I feel like I don't belong in El Salvador, you know, uh, the language that I grew up with, that I speak. And so, um, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that one out. And, but we have this lush, um, literary landscape now that I think is a product of exactly that. You know, Solmas wasn't born in this country. Ocean Vong wasn't born in this country. Mm-hmm. I wasn't born in this country. Um, we have a lot of immigrants. Um, Kaveh Akbar wasn't born in this country. That are, I think our poetry comes from there. And we also have that these, at least for Somas, um, we're both byproducts of June Jordan's dream, which is um, this way of thought that she introduced at UC Berkeley called... Um, um, poetry for the people, which is supposed, you know, we, you're in academia. What would it look like if we involve the community and take down the ivory tower and evolve uh, people from the outside inside? And June really showed us, you know, this queer black woman, daughter of immigrants as well, um, who was really dreaming in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Um, and we are here, or I am here because of her and we are still trying to figure that question out 
you know? It's a good question to continue to interrogate. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that legacy. I think we have time for this one last passage, Javier. Um, and maybe you can set that up for us a little bit because this is farther back yeah. and, in um, the book. This passage is important to me because, you know, what the headlines in the media usually does is flatten immigrants into just suffering. But even in their suffering, even in their worst days, we have to find joy and happiness. So to not make us dwell in what's around us. And sometimes nature gives us those signs. And this is um, one of those signs in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on April 29th, 1999. I tried fighting sleep. Eventually, I gave in, but woke up when Chino nudged me. Bicho, bicho, look, he said, louder, his breath smelling of cigarette smoke. Flying fish, flying fish, fish out of the water, flying, swimming in the air, like dragonflies, but bigger, more and more of them. They're running from dolphins, the mean coyote says loud. I can't believe it. Maybe I'm dreaming. I thought they were a myth. I saw them on TV but didn't believe. They glide in the air for meters and meters. They ride the wind like bullets, like skinny balloons, more and more. We're gonna make it, I whisper. It's a good sign, Chino says. Ya la hicimos. People in the boat cheer. I don't know how long I've been asleep. Don't know how close we are to wherever we're going in Mexico. It's a good omen, some men shout. A good omen, people cheer and clap more. Then the fish disappear, like nothing happened. We wait for them to come back. I look over at Carla, her smile bright white in the moonlight. Patricia smiles tambien. Both of their eyes wide, glowing in the dark. We keep looking for the fish, but now the stars are up. The moon more than halfway over us, on the other side of the boat. I must have slept a long time. I look and look at the water. Nothing, Chino says. Sleep, bicho. Rest. such a gorgeous passage and there is that sense of hopefulness that you've been able to infuse really all through this book despite the harrowing traumatic events and I congratulations on being able to do that <laughs> that thank that, you yeah yeah you have to in order to survive yeah you do you do <laughs> you absolutely do before we go javier i'm hoping that you can briefly mention your work with um salva vision mm -hmm. salva vision so salva vision or salva vision mm -hmm. it's an organization that is run by a five foot tall Salvadoran woman who immigrated here as an 18-year-old in 1980 
fleeing from the Salvadoran War. And the group that she was with uh, ran out of water in the desert, and she survived. She was rescued. So this is 1980. My trip in the same section of the desert that she ran out of water, I ran out of water, but it's 1999. And now this section of the desert, which is um, west of Nogales and east of Yuma, didn't have a center. And it's one of the biggest corridor that um, the cartels mm -hmm. and the coyotes are using now. Mm -hmm. And this short woman gathered the funds and now built literally a brick and mortar place. It's a shelter on the other side, uh, on the Mexican side of Sasabe. And she does all she can to provide food, clothes, water. Um, she's partnered with lawyers who do pro bono work. And so if you are moved by any anything that you just heard, please um, look up salvavision.org and you can donate anything that you can. It's desperately needed. So that's salva, S-A-L-V-A-V-I-S-I-O-N dot org. Mm -hmm. And rarely do these organizations... Um, Rarely are they run by immigrants themselves. And this is a survivor like myself who has been facing her own trauma since she was 18 years old. Yeah. Thank you so much for the work you're doing there, Javier. Um, yes, Salva Vision, if you want the, the gringo pronunciation. <laughs> um, I'm so pleased to have been able to speak with you today and hear your story. And again, we've been talking to Javier Zamora, whose book Solito is now available, will be in, available soon in Spanish. So I, I really encourage you to go out and, and look at that. It's a lovely book, as is the predecessor to that book, his collection of poems, Unaccompanied. Thank you so much, Javier. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD FM 90.7. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and I thank you so much for listening in. Before.